Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. Today's show is focused on the consequences of the shrinking middle class. If you go back to the 1960s and 1970s, it was possible for a single income family with blue collar employment to join the ranks of the middle class. Today, the number of two income families have grown dramatically and families are finding it harder than ever to make ends meet. The shrinking middle class has enormous economic and social consequences. It's given rise to a new wave of socialism as the average person feels like they're just getting the short end of the stick. The Organization for Economic Cooperation Development defines the middle class as comprising households with incomes between 75% and 200% of the median. That varies widely by country. Across member nations, the proportion of population who are in that category has fallen significantly over the last 30 years, from 64% to 61%. Today, only 50% of the U.S. population falls into that middle-class definition. That definition of middle class doesn't really tell the full story. For example, it doesn't take into account family size, nor cost of living. The fact is, there's been a continual erosion of our purchasing power over the years. Those on fixed incomes are the ones who are really losing the most. We can learn a lot from history. We are facing a growing class warfare where those with less blame those with more for their situation and for exploitation. Now, I don't believe that entrepreneurs are to blame for the plight of those who are struggling. Entrepreneurs and business owners struggle too. The vast majority of them suffer setbacks on a regular basis, and only a few manage to rise above water to build sustainable businesses and sustained wealth. The problem with the tax the rich approach is that it works only to a point. Once you reach a threshold of pain, the ultra-rich have the financial means and, more importantly, the incentive to organize their affairs in a manner that legally minimizes their tax liability. Many will simply relocate to a lower tax jurisdiction. Throughout history, governments have tried every trick in the book to tax the population. When there was a flight of capital, countries like Greece and South Africa instituted capital controls to make it illegal to ship money out of the country. Here, too, the ultra-wealthy have resorted to other methods. Some would convert their wealth to gold and physically carry their money out of the country. Some would barter assets outside the country to affect a transaction. Richard Branson's a great example. He lives in Necker Island in the BVI, the British Virgin Islands, a locale with very low taxes. Some have criticized him for being a tax exile. While he may not be paying tax in the UK on income earned outside the UK, his companies do pay hundreds of millions in corporate tax. His companies, which he built from the ground up, employ thousands of people. Is he a villain or a social benefactor of gargantuan proportions? Clearly, there's people on both sides of that debate. There's no question that people who have succeeded in business have attracted envy, admiration, and most importantly, jealousy. And it's that jealousy combined with the genuine hardship that many families are facing that has fueled the latest round of anti-rich sentiment. Increasingly, newly elected politicians want wealth taxes, dramatically higher income taxes, corporate taxes, surtaxes, and so on. We're seeing it in France. We're seeing it in the U.S. The problem is it won't help. If only our politicians took a history lesson. Since the end of the Second World War, tax rates in the United States have been all over the map. Back in the 60s, the wealthiest individual paid up marginal tax rate of 90%. Today, it's a 37%. But during that period, corporate, individual, capital gains rates have bounced around all over the place like a bouncy rubber ball. Throughout it all, regardless of how high or how low tax rates have been, the overall tax revenue 
measured as a percent of GDP, has been more or less the same. U.S. tax revenues average to about 17.7% of GDP, year in and year out, regardless of what the actual tax rates are. In other words, the U.S. government's slice of the economic pie is about 17.7%, plus or minus a very narrow range. For example, last year, 2018, federal government's tax revenue was about 18% of GDP. The amount of economic activity has been a larger contributor to tax revenue than the actual tax rate. As individual investors, we don't control the political climate, nor do we control the laws. We also need to be mindful of the growing tide of public sentiment that is clearly targeting anyone who's successful as somehow being exploitative. Entrepreneurs generate economic activity. They give people employment. They give people better living spaces for families to grow and thrive, and they should be rewarded for taking those risks along the way. As Tom Wheelwright says, the tax code does not tax you on your income. It taxes you on the manner in which you receive your income. So pay close attention not only to your income, but how it comes to you. Be prepared for lots of changes to the tax rules in the coming years as governments become increasingly desperate and creative for ways to pull in more revenue. As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.